How safe is your farm? Statistically, maybe not very. Agriculture has the poorest safety record of any occupation in the UK. It's 18 times more dangerous than the industry average. It's Farm Safety Week this week and Stephanie Barclay, manager of the Farm Safety Foundation, takes off the hard hat and the high-vis vest to talk to us a little later. And the bee population continues to decline. What does that mean and what can we do about it? Think about how we can deliver habitat and reverse the decline in many of the bee species and pollinators. We'll talk about Bees Needs Week with a farmer and the chair of the Nature Friendly Farmers Network in a moment. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Hello, I'm Steve Orchard. Hope you've had a good farming week. In the headlines this week, if you employ workers from the EU, you now have less than a year to register them on the government's EU settlement scheme. Seasonal and permanent workers from the European Union must be registered if they want to work on UK farms in future years. Applications close on the 30th of June 2021. Details are available at gov.uk. The National Sheep Association has confirmed that despite COVID-19, the upcoming Eastern Regional Ram sales will go ahead at Rugby on Friday 28th of August and Melton Mowbray on the revised date of Friday the 18th of September. Innovative agri-tech projects, including fruit-picking robots and autonomous crop systems, are set to benefit from a £24 million government fund. There are nine projects, including React First from Nottingham, which is receiving over £2 million to generate clean, sustainable food for poultry with an up to 75% smaller carbon footprint. Saga Robotics in Lincoln will perform the largest known global demonstration of robotics and autonomous technologies on a farm. And Tuberscan Demo, from Lincoln will receive £2 million to develop an innovative demonstrator system to measure average potato sizes and yield throughout potato fields. You can expect more on these developments on next week's farming programme. And bees are in the news this week. Around 80% of the world's most consumed food crops need pollinators, including just about all of the fruit and veg we enjoy in the UK. But the bee population is declining, in part due to the gradual disappearance of their natural habitat. The government's National Pollinator Strategy was created to help. And Martin Lyons, chair of the Nature Friendly Farmers Network, and farmer Chris German join us today on the farming programme. It's been Bees Needs Week this week. Uh, First, Martin, what's this hoping to achieve? Um, Getting everybody, so farmers and members of the public, to try and deliver resource for bees and pollinators. So that little bit in a garden or that area on on a farm to sort of think about how we can deliver habitat and reverse the decline in many of the bee species and pollinators. And what are you actually asking farmers to do? Well, uh, I think about their management. Can they uh, have hedges with more flowering elements in, those field corners, those grassy areas? Can we leave wildflowers growing? Um, And how can we have connectivity right across the farm? So how can you have the bees be able to travel and have a home on your farm and on your fields? Um, And many farmers are doing that, and they're entering into stewardship schemes to deliver flower margins or grass margins and new hedgerows to really give a home to those pollinators all year round. Chris, you're a dairy farmer. You've done this. Is it simply a case of planting some flowers? Uh, The right type of flowers, though. You need the the mix of flowers to keep the food supply going throughout the season. So you need them flowering at different stages. 
and you also need the different depths of nectar or, or whatever. There's a technical name for where, where it is, I'm sure, <laughs> um, so that you can get the different species of bees flourishing as well. But it isn't necessarily simple. The, the biggest problem we have on dairy farm is the natural fertility on a dairy farm is very high because we have lots of manure on dairy farms. Soil fertility and organic matter is much higher than it would be on a dedicated crop farm. And so the more fertile the soil, the more the grasses and the thistles and the docks are going to dominate these plots and the flowers won't get a chance. So it's a little bit harder for dairy farms because of you know, natural fertility. Um, my farm, I had a bit of an advantage being a hill farm. We ha- we've got shallower soils and so I think we've had a very good take. But most of our dairy farmers won't be on a, on a farm like that. But we've got one farmer, David Johnson, he's on a very fertile farm and he's had a really good take um, of flowers. But I think he had to put a bit more work into it, hand roguing out thistles, etc. But it can be done. Martin, the bees don't just need some flowers for pollen though, do they? They need flowers for, for pollinating and for the honey, you know, for the resource, nectar. But they also need habitat to nest in during the winter. Um, so it's about leaving those untidy corners so they've got somewhere to go and hibernate and nest in and, and not being over-tidy um, because they, it's not just about the summer and the flowers, it's about the whole season and the life cycle of the bees and the pollinators. Chris, is this not going to take a huge amount of effort, time and space? What I really like about this and what I hadn't appreciated before is it, it doesn't need a massive area on each farm. I think, you know, if we get 1% or 2% of every farm in the country, Marrick thinks we would have no issues whatsoever. And, and the beauty of it is it likes the poorest part of the farm. So I think most of us can find half a hectare that isn't really doing too much. Maybe we're just storing some machinery there or it's a difficult corner to get in with machinery so it doesn't do so much and then that means that we can farm the rest of the farm to the best way to sustainably feed people as well, if you see what I mean. So I think we can have win-win situations there. And what about the general public, Martin? What could we do? Uh, by you, you know, uh, supporting farmers who are, are, are doing those measures in buying produce from that kind of farming system, but also in their gardens. Do you need to cut your grass so often? Is there an area you can leave in the corner? Is there some flowering plants you can have... Uh, for as long as possible through the year to deliver um, habitat and a pollinating resource for those bees. And if we all do a little bit, that amounts to a tremendous amount and allows bees and pollinators to have a home. And where can we find out more about this, Martin? The Bumblebee Conservation Society. um, Go on a search engine and and just put bees needs in and you'll find a whole load of information. Our website for the Nature Friendly Farming Network had some resource on there to explain of what farmers can do and also what gardeners can do on their places. Thank you so much to Nature Friendly Farmers Network Chair Martin Lines and organic dairy farmer Chris German. To agronomy now, good morning, Sean. Can't do without the bees, eh? Yes, good morning, Steve. Yeah, I mean, every one of us in agriculture understands the importance of butterflies and moths and pollinators and bees and wasps and hoverflies and ladybirds and lacewings because we work alongside them. They're part of all of the solutions that we're trying to employ in order to get crops to harvest. Um, we work alongside Mother 
nature. That's what integrated pest management is all about. And we know only too well how vitally important they are. And we try to protect them at all costs. And when you drive out into the countryside, you go on your holidays, you go across Lincolnshire, you see all of these open fields. That is UK agriculture, and that is the home of all of these pollinators and vital little creatures, from bees to bumblebees to moths to butterflies and all of those other little creatures that are too small for us to even see, some of which we probably don't even realise are there. That's what UK agriculture is all about. And with integrated pest management systems, the modern way of farming is that we let Mother Nature deal with her own problem unless she's becoming overwhelmed by the pest, and it's only at that point that we will step in and start to help Mother Nature get back in control of the pests. So, for example, the wasps who are feeding on the aphids and the ladybirds and the hoverflies and the lacewings which are feeding on the aphids, if the aphid numbers get too high and they become overwhelming to those predators, then we step in to knock the population of aphids back and then allow the predators to rebuild and overpopulate the pest again. That's what modern agriculture is all about. That is how we farm. So it's always uh, utmost in our mind to protect Mother Nature. But when you get something like the neonicotinoid ban that we've now lost that seed treatment not just on all seed rate but also on sugar beet and cereals you start to see that actually the creatures who are going to suffer the most and benefit least from the neonicotinoid ban are the very creatures that that people from the NGOs and the lobbyists were seeking to protect in the first place so the bees and the moths and the uh, the little pollinators who rely on that massive source of pollen the only source of pollen in April and May, which is all seed rape, all those thousands of acres of yellow fields are going to disappear. For example, I would normally expect to be planting around 2,000 hectares, 5,000 acres of all seed rape in any one autumn. I have absolutely nothing planned to be drilled this autumn. So that means I will have no source of pollen in April, May next year because we're not going to put rape in the ground because we can no longer grow it in a way that makes us believe we're going to actually get it to harvest without losing a fortune, which is absolutely dreadful because that impacts not just bees and wasps, but it's the honeybees, the domestic bees, but bumblebees, solitary bees, all of the little moths, the butterflies, all of those things, the migratory birds as well, as they come in in April and May, they're looking for a source of food, and that's usually abundant in the old seed rape crop, no longer going to be there. So it's a real worry for me about where we're going. Still, at least the NGOs won against UK agriculture. So let's move on to proper agronomy. There's not much really to talk about agronomy-wise. Pre-harvest glyphosate on all seed rape still underway. Remember, it's the seeds in the middle pods when you've got more brown than green. That's the time to go. But you're doing the right thing to just delay. A lot of these fields are hanging on and hanging on, and you don't want to spoil a ship for a heap of the time. Don't go in too soon. You'll end up with an awful lot of red seeds. By the same token, don't leave it too late. You're probably better to be three days early with glyphosate than three days late, but being a week early is way too early. Um, Pre-harvest applications on winter wheat, there will be fields which filled up with grass weeds late. Perhaps they didn't get a pre-em herbicide on last autumn. So there's a lot of medagrasses, bent grasses, cooch grasses in the bottom of some of these crops, by no means all of them. But if you need to do pre-harvest on wheat, remember you can't apply glyphosate to a seed crop. You need 30% moisture. That's when you rub the grain out and it will hold the imprint of your thumbnail without popping it out. That's around 30%. And that's important because that means the crop is physiologically ripe and any glyphosate you apply will go down to the root, but it cannot get back up to the ear and onto the grain. And of course, all of the grains are protected by a little envelope, the gloom. So you're not going to directly contact those grains anyway with glyphosate so that's your timing on winter wheat um 
Peas are turning very, very quickly out there in the field. Again, you can't use glyphosate on seed crops, and if they're pretty clean, then let them go on their own. But the timing for glyphosate is when, again, 30% moisture, but when the peas are rubbery and very hard to split between your fingers, and the bottom pods will look very, very papery, and they will have an all-over pale appearance, there will still be some green in them, however spring beans chocolate spot um, which is a disease which is very benign through may and june but then it has a, a phase which is determined as aggressive in july and we're seeing that in some fields where it suddenly sets off and but in the space of a few hours the crop just goes absolutely it goes rampant within the crop and there's very little you can do to stop that we used to have chlorthalonil to help us but of course we've lost chlorthalonil as well now so speak to your advisor about what's going on out there sugar beet virus showing up everywhere now remember there are several viruses within that whole complex there's beet yellows and that can lose up to 50% of your yield it's the fastest developing of the viruses you have beet mild yellowing virus BMYV that can lose up to 30% of the yield if that gets hold and beet chlorosis virus BCHV um, but also beet mosaic virus which is one of the least affecting uh, viruses out there and that looks like the effect you get from debut you get that yellow mottling within the leaf um, there's an awful lot of virus showing up out there um, and you, you're just going to have to get used to the fact that this is probably the new norm if you look forward to next year at the moment the only insecticide we have to control the virus vectors the aphids demises persky is one application of topiki uh, because again we've lost the neonicotinoids in sugar beet a crop that it's not a flowering crop not only do bees rarely forage in it they rarely visit it but you know the beet could therefore go the way of the oilseed rape if we're not careful in terms of us not being able to control the pests within it and it becoming uneconomic to grow so it's one of those seasons this year it's a season of sticky ups there are wild oats sticking up late popping up everywhere there are poppies there are broadleaf weeds popping up through these canopies which have germinated over the course of the last two or three weeks so 2020 the year that never stops giving. Let's see what the next seven days bring us. Many thanks as always, Sean Sparling, Sparling Agronomy Services. Just how safe is farming? At a time when we're being asked to take greater safety precautions in all aspects of our daily lives, wearing masks, keeping our distance, sanitising everything, it's worrying to hear that agriculture, despite improvements, still has one of the worst safety records of all industries. Why? And what's being done to improve things? Stephanie Barclay is manager of the Farm Safety Foundation. Stephanie, thanks for joining us on the Farming Programme this morning. We have Farm Safety Week coming up starting tomorrow. Now, it amazes me sometimes, but we've got a fairly awful record, really, in terms of farm safety, haven't we? Yeah, Steve, unfortunately, it's something that I've had to say every single year since I've been doing Farm Safety Week, that agriculture has the poorest safety record of any occupation in the UK. It's 18 times more dangerous than the industry average. And it's just not right. Why do you think that is? Oh, there are so many different reasons. Um, perfect example, farmers don't retire at 65 years of age. You know, and half the fatal um, injuries in the HSE report this year were people over the age of 50. People are less agile, they're used to doing it, they're doing it badly, but getting away with it as a matter of luck, and we all know luck runs out. So there are things that farmers are dealing with, the time constraints, the weather rushing to get things done, large um, mechanised systems now. They're dealing with livestock, which is 
so unpredictable. Um, and also foreign vehicles, which I wouldn't be surprised to learn if that was probably one of the main causes. And it has been in the top three, you know, over the last five years. One of the main causes of fatal accidents is farm um, vehicles. And that's including things like quad bikes, which haven't really been around for that long, but they are causing fatal accidents on our farms. There's an awful lot more safety precautions and protection in equipment these days. Is, is, is it getting better at all? Um, I'm, I'm glad to say, actually, this year it is. It's encouraging to see that the numbers of um, people losing their lives on farms has actually decreased over the last year by 37%. Um, you know, it's gone from 32 farm workers last year to 20 this year. But don't get me wrong, that is still 20 families who've lost a loved one. You know, so that's 20 far too many. I wish we didn't have to have Farm Safety Week, but we do. And we'll continue to make those hard and unpopular messages get out there right across the week. But not just that. I mean, we as a foundation do this all year round. But the wonderful thing about Farm Safety Week is that we're getting the key organisations in five different countries. So we've got the government, we've got the National Farmers Unions, we've got, you know, lots of people, the Young Farmers Club, all joining together with us, IOSH, who are basically wanting to get this message and share it with their members. So we do care. We're an industry that's been recognised as key workers in, in the economy. We only account for 1% of the UK workforce, but we account for 20% of all UK workplace deaths. That's mm. not on. It's, it's not a good statistic at all, is it? Is Farm Safety Week just about raising awareness or is, is there more to it? No, I mean, the, the whole ethos behind Farm Safety Week in the past was about raising awareness and challenging behaviours and trying to change that culture and bringing in a culture of people who actually think about what they're doing, who are making decisions dynamically in your head, you know, to, to actually plan their jobs safer. But this year, there are so many good things happening out there in terms of people that are supporting each other from a mental well-being point of view as well as a physical well-being. You know, but also, there are, there's technology that's been brought in that has actually revolutionized the way people look at their safety checks, their pre-start checks, their silos, how safe they are, you know, and actually the location of the people that they're working with. So there's a lot of really good behaviours out there and they we're wanting to share those with the industry just to show that you know what there's a lot more good behaviour than there is poor behaviour and that's what we need to remember there are a couple of things that we're we're doing as well we're doing a farm safety hero um and it's we're asking people to nominate somebody that they think is doing a really good job to push you know, good um, safety behaviours in their area. It's online. They can nominate it's no more than 100 words. And they have an opportunity to win um, rugby star Tom Youngs, who's a farmer, obviously. He has specially designed a helmet for us. So they can win that. Um, also, we've got the results of the Tidy Farm Awards, which is basically we're trying to celebrate people that are doing it well. Really quite a nice positive thing again. And it's about that, you know what, there are a lot of good people doing really good stuff out there, so it's time to celebrate them so that we can normalise good behaviours. Absolutely. And where can we find out more information about this, Stephanie? Um, you can try www.yellowwellies.org, which will have articles right throughout the week and a lot of really good resources for people that need it. But also we're going to be very active on social media. 
So it will be Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our hashtag is hashtag Farm Safety Week. And we're at Yellow Wellies UK. We wish you obviously all the best with uh, Farm Safety Week. Uh, Stephanie Barkley, thanks so much for joining the farming programme today. Thanks for having me, Steve. Let's get an update now on this year's pea harvest. Stephen Francis from Fens Peas Morning. Welcome to the farming programme. Morning. You must be right in the thick of it harvest-wise at the moment, but yields are being affected by the weather, I gather. Is that because of the very wet weather at the start of the year or the very dry weather we've had more recently? I think it all goes back to June last year. Um, When we got those heavy rains, the soil took a hell of a pounding, um, pushed the oxygen out of the soil. We had no winter, so the soil got a bit anaerobic. We then got a very warm April and May. We almost felt as though summer was upon us there. And I think, if I I suppose psychologically, I think some of these crops, obviously I'm talking about peas, but I think other crops, they just haven't got a clue where to be because the weather patterns are so uh, far away from the normal that they would expect. Having said that, what is normal? You know, with (laughs) COVID about and everything, we have a new normal all over the place. It's a heck of an operation to get all this out of the field in such a short space of time. How do you do it? Well, it's often been said it's a military operation. So the planning, even for next year, is starting now, sort of looking at fields and thinking about what varieties we want. Different varieties need different number of heat units as we call them to get to maturity and so it's sort of tying in the different varieties the different soil types different sowing times so that when we normally get to the middle of june we start harvesting and we continue harvesting for seven days a week 24 hours a day until we finish but uh, yeah it's all a bit hit and miss this year really and give me some kind of numbers Stephen. how many tons are we talking about over a harvest for you guys well, we like to produce, our aim is to produce between nine and 10,000 tonnes over a 44-day period, most of them going into the Greenyard factory in Boston. So, you know, we need to be wiping out a serious amount of uh, acreage and tonnage each day with uh, three viners, a fleet of lorries running backwards and forwards all the time. And as I said earlier, it is just like a military operation and... We've got to mind, be mindful of road traffic conditions for how long it takes to get to the factory because we want most of these peas harvested and frozen in under 150 minutes so that we capture all the flavour, the taste and the nutrients that um, are in peas. Yes, as you say, meticulously planned campaign. Well, uh, it's, it's good to hear that things are going OK. Maybe not as good as you'd have hoped for, but nice to hear that the quality's better. Do you think the lower yields likely to ultimately affect prices? That is out of my hands. Um, <laughs> I, it's fair to say that the continent um, are experiencing the same sort of weather patterns as we are, and so uh, it's very similar in terms of yield over there. Um who knows it will only that sort of will only play out into 2021 as uh, but you know we've seen a huge um increase in demand since um covid and more people eating at home i know that restaurants and uh, hospitality is now opening up and so that will probably encourage people out but certainly generally the freezer cabinet has been under pressure from demand from consumers wanting to cook more and eat more at home as they've had to do.
Yeah, we live in very strange, changing times. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us on the farming programme this morning. No worries, pleasure. Kit Dickinson from Openfield is here with this week's market report and prices. Morning, Kit. Well, good morning, Steve. A strange start to the week in terms of global futures. We saw a negative start despite some quite bullish stories. London and French wheat both traded lower, London finishing with losses of £1.60. We were largely following the US markets down after the USDA report last Friday failed to bring any fresh bullish data and highlighted the worrying trend of lower demand. London rebounded on Tuesday with gains of £1 basis November 20. This was mostly down to the weaker pound rather than fresh global news. The pound's weakness was significant and has moved a long way from the end of last week. It will boost the UK ex-farm prices, barley and rope particularly. Most of the driver seems to be the poor economic recovery data released at the start of the week, which was well below where analysts expected it to be. US markets were mixed with May's surprisingly flat despite the falling crop condition data, although it is still extremely good versus the five-year average, and also confirmation of a 1.7 million metric tonne sale of maize to China. This is the fourth largest single sale the US has ever recorded from the USDA data, and it will boost the quantity of the trade that was agreed in the phase one deal. Looking at all seed rape, rape yields do seem predictably disappointing the more I hear. The AHDB ran an article this week suggesting that next year's area could be the lowest for nearly 20 years. I can't see the dramatic slide to a smaller area changing. This week we have seen some RSR cut in the Lincolnshire area, but with the weather forecast changing last Sunday to an overcast and windy week, many have held on for better weather to come. Hopefully we shall see some yield and quality indications next week. Barley. News on flagging results. I have seen several results that have come in within spec, some samples as low as 1.5 nitrogen. Most of the barleys we have seen have been extremely bold considering the year, and the thinking being so far that since there are fewer grains on site, hence lower yields, the late rains have allowed the grains that are present to fill out nicely. It was much better news after Monday and intake on malting barley should start into stores soon. Feed barley movement is already happening and it is worth noting that we have seen several low bushel weight samples so far and this has mostly been into ports as feed. So moving on to prices this week for feed wheat, July is 163 to 165. The same price for August, 163 to 165. Moving forward in November to 167 to 169, February 170 to 172, and May 173 to 175. Milling wheat premiums are currently £27. Oilseed rate slightly higher again this week with July at 322 to 324. Again, the same price for August, 322 to 324, with a good rise into November at 332 to 334, February 335 to 337, and May 338 to 340. Feed barley values haven't changed too much for July, 122 to 124, August, 123 to 125, November, 130 to 132, February, 133 to 135 and May 135 to 137. For specific malting barley premiums, please speak to your Openfield Farm Business Manager. Thank you very much. Kit Dickinson from Openfield. Many thanks as ever. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. 
to the week's farming weather now. After a little rain overnight, it's a pretty dry week. Light winds are not that warm for mid-July. Northerly winds in single figures today. Cloudy but mostly dry. Maybe a shower or two this afternoon, but not too much to get excited about. Highs of 18 Celsius and down to 9 Celsius overnight into Monday, which looks bright. Plenty of sunny spells. Dry with light winds from the northwest and highs of 18 Celsius again. Tuesday and Wednesday bring a couple of days of high pressure. Sunny to start both days, but clouding over in the afternoons. The wind is light, almost calm and variable. Dry for both days, 18 Celsius the high for Tuesday and a couple of degrees warmer on Wednesday. For the second half of the week, the winds stay light, no more than 10 or 12 miles per hour and mostly from the southwest. Some rain expected later on Friday, otherwise dry with highs of 22 Celsius. I'm Steve Orchard. Thanks for being there again. The Farming Programme returns same time next week. In the meantime, stay safe, stay positive and have a good farming week.